And I want to begin by asking you a very, very simple question. Now, when you hear this question this morning, some of you immediately are going to say the answer to that question is no. And uh, that's what you truly believe. Others today, you're going to hear this question and you're going to say to yourself, the answer to that question is yes, absolutely. I believe that's what's happening. But I would encourage you before you answer yes or no to think about this question. I'm going to tell you what I believe about 75% into the sermon this morning. But nonetheless, the question is this, are we under the judgment of God? Here we are at this time in history, a virus has taken over not only Harris County, not only Texas, not only the United States, but it's a world. That's why it's called a pandemic. That word pan, the prefix there, literally means all. And so it is an epidemic that has covered all the world. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, could this be the judgment of God, not only on our country, but on our world. Now, the reason I ask that question is because in the last few weeks, I have heard some pastors and Christian leaders say that they believe that we are under the judgment of God because of sin, things that we've done in our own lives, things that we've done as a nation, things that we've done as a world, and they're interpreting this COVID-19 as the judgment of God. And then I've noticed that many other pastors and Christian leaders haven't mentioned it at all. They haven't even addressed the subject. And so I conclude from their silence on this that they don't think we're under the judgment of God because after all, if a minister, a preacher, a pastor thought we were under the judgment of God, certainly they would uh, bring that to the attention of the congregation. I don't think any Christian preacher could think that we're under the judgment of God and keep that to himself. If a person believed that, they would have to share it because if somebody thought we were under the judgment of God, that would greatly affect how we respond to this pandemic. And so I think even in the ranks of pastors and other Christian leaders, some think this is the judgment of God and some don't think this is the judgment of God. And so that's the question I want us to be thinking about today. Are we under the judgment of God? Now, as we try to come to an answer to that question, I want to build this message today around two statements. And if you have a notebook or a piece of paper, if you're a note taker of any kind, this would be a very simple sermon to take notes on. And if you have your Bible today anywhere nearby, I know everybody's probably home, so hopefully if you don't have it in front of you right now, even now, you could go get your Bible. Maybe it's in another room because I can't think of any sermon that I've ever preached in all my life that will have more Scripture than the sermon we're going to be dealing with today. We're going to be all over the Bible today. But I want to begin by these two statements. And statement number one is simply this. There is such a thing as the judgment of God. There is such a thing as a judgment of God. I think some people, when they hear the question, are we under the judgment of God? Immediately they say, no, that's, this couldn't be the judgment of God. God wouldn't do anything like that. Well, friend, let me remind you that there is such a thing as the judgment of God, and we read about it all through the Bible. So what I want us to do is to look at several passages this morning that 
that talk to us about the judgment of God. And why don't we begin in the book of Genesis? That's the first book in the Bible. And let's just go to Genesis chapter number six. And let's think about the flood that took place in the days of Noah. And before we look at these verses, let me say that the flood that came on the earth was not the first judgment in the Bible. You remember after Adam and Eve sinned, God judged them. God judged the devil for tempting them to sin. And in the very next chapter, God judged Cain for killing his brother Abel. And so by the time we get to judgment chapter six, or Genesis chapter six, there have been several judgments that have already taken place. But nonetheless, in Genesis chapter six, six look in verse number five. The Bible says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so in the days of Noah, sin was so rampant on the earth that God, as he's looking down from heaven on the situation, said, I can't take this anymore. This sin has come uh, very much to my attention. I see what's going on, and I will now destroy the world and judge this sin, and everybody's going to be destroyed except for Noah and his family and those animals that get on that ark. But notice something very different, because this is going to be a theme that's going to recur over and over again in this message this morning. In verse number eight, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so we see this, that even in judgment... God remembers mercy. God is full of grace. And even though he's judging and at this time destroying the whole earth, he was merciful to Noah and merciful to his family. But that's, that's one of the examples I wanted us to see this morning of the judgment of God in the Bible. Now, let's go to Genesis chapter 19, and I'll show you another example of God's judgment. You're familiar with this passage more than likely. We're reading here about Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know that back in Old Testament times, these were wicked, wicked cities polluted by sexual sin. And it got to the point where God said, that's enough. I'm not tolerating this anymore. And so God decided to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 19, look in verse number 24. Then the Lord rained down brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife, that is Lot's wife, looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where she had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so God is now judging Sodom and Gomorrah, sending down fire and brimstone. And when this judgment is complete, there's smoke coming up from the city, just like the smoke of a furnace. But look in verse 29. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham. You might want to underline that phrase. God remembered Abraham. And so even here in this judgment, we're seeing the grace and the mercy of God. In judgment, God does remember mercy, and he was merciful to Abraham. Well, let's look at another Old Testament example. Go to the book of 
2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel chapter 24, this is a judgment that is not maybe as familiar to us, but at this time, David was the king of Israel, and David had committed a sin at this time against God. And what he had done was he had taken a census of all the people in his kingdom, and you would say, well, now what's wrong with taking a census? Well, nothing's necessarily wrong with it, except in this case, David's motive for doing that was so that he could build up his own pride, build up his own ego, and as he counted his people in his kingdom, and especially those in his military, uh, David evidently began to think, I don't have to trust God as much as I used to because my army is so strong now, I'll just put my trust in them. And so this census that David took was very, very displeasing to the Lord. Now, in chapter number 10, in fact, let me just say this in case you're reading the whole chapter ahead of me. Uh, here in, well, I'll go back, I'll just show you this. In the very first verse of 2 Samuel 24, it says, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he, that is God, moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. And so you read this, you say, well, now, what could David have done wrong? God is telling him to judge, or to take this census. Well, we read this same story in Chronicles, and in the book of Chronicles, uh, we read that it was Satan who told David to take this census. So in Chronicles, it says the devil told him to do it. In 2 Samuel, it says God told him to do it. So how are we supposed to put those two together? Well, both are true. It was the devil who motivated Satan or, or David to do this. Satan motivated that, but God allowed it. And so both God and Satan were involved. It was Satan's uh, idea, but God looked down and God saw that David's heart was getting a little bit proud anyway. And, and basically God just said, okay, David, go ahead. I'm going to let you take the census. But God was not the one who actually dreamed up the idea. That came from, from the devil himself. But in verse number 10 of 2 Samuel 24, now after David has taken the census, notice what it says. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, or David's prophet, saying, go and tell David, thus says the Lord. Now here's God's judgment on David's sin. I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. And so God's judgment on David's sin of taking this census, he's giving David an option. You choose one of these three punishments. Now, I'm reading this out of the New King James. If you have the NIV or one of the more modern translations, going to read slightly differently, but let me read it from the New King James. Verse 13, so Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' plague in your land? And so God said, do you want a famine? Do you want to be pursued by your enemies? Or do you want a three-day plague? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I'm in great distress Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. And so as David was contemplating his options, he thought, well, I don't want to have to be running from my enemies 
for an extended period of time. Certainly, I don't want to be in a plague, but at least if I'm in a plague that God has sent, God could be merciful in that setting. Verse 15, so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel. That's called a judgment, a plague. The Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba. Now watch this, 70,000 men of the people died. A lot of people died in Israel with this plague. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And so at this point in the judgment, the angel of the Lord comes now to the nation of Israel and he's about to destroy the entire nation. And God spoke to that angel and God said, it is enough, restrain your hand. No more judgment. The judgment has come to an end. And so here for the third time, we're seeing that even in judgment, God remembers merciful, remembers mercy. He remains merciful and God continues to extend grace. And so there you see three judgments in the Old Testament. Uh, we see the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and now this plague for three days that came on the nation of Israel. Now, I know you're sitting there at home this morning listening to that, and you're thinking, now, John, that's interesting. But all of that is in the Old Testament. All of that is before the days of Jesus. And in the Old Testament, God's more vengeful, and God's stronger in his judgment. But when Jesus came on the earth, it's just all grace. Well, that would be a distorted view of the Bible. Listen, God's grace is in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and God's judgment is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So I've just given you three examples from the Old Testament. Let me give you three examples of God's judgment now from the New Testament. And the first example, we won't even look it up, but use your brain to think for a moment. In the book of Revelation, so much of that book is talking about the judgment that is yet to come on the earth during the period of the great tribulation. Now, uh, over a year ago, we started our study through the book of Revelation, and it got delayed by the Christmas holidays, and, and then the first of the year, we did some different things, and about the time we were going to get back into it, we're in the pandemic, and so we're trying to preach and address what's going on in the world from a biblical perspective, but the majority of our study in Revelation, even when the series is over, we will say, well, the majority of our study was on the Great Tribulation, chapter 6 through 18. In fact, this past week, we looked it up. We counted. Did you know I preached 17 sermons on the Great Tribulation? I know some of you are thinking, yes, I do know that. It seemed like 1,700 sermons. I didn't think we would ever get finished with it. Well, I understand because I felt the same way, and I'm glad we got out of the Tribulation. But I was trying to walk us through uh, what the Bible teaches about the Great Tribulation. But remember this, the Tribulation, that's in Revelation. That's the New Testament. And so we see that one day the judgment of God will come on this earth in a way that it hasn't even come on the earth uh, yet in a very, in an unbelievable way. So that's, that's one New Testament example is the tribulation yet to come. But go to Matthew chapter 11 and I'll give you even another example of a pending uh, judgment that will come uh, on this earth in Matthew chapter 11. Now, this is Jesus himself talking, and he is pronouncing a judgment that will one day come on certain cities in Israel because the people who lived there did not repent of their sins and place their faith in him when he began preaching. So, Matthew chapter 11, and look in verse number 20. 
Then Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And so sin was the problem. In verse 21, Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment. Jesus is talking about a future judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, now remember, Capernaum is where Jesus headquartered his public ministry for three years. It's right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So Capernaum uh, was a very, very special place. He said, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, that they're exalted because Jesus had been there for this time, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And so Jesus now is pronouncing a judgment that would come on these cities. And in the case of Capernaum, Jesus is saying on judgment day, it will be better for Sodom than it would be for you. Now, we just read about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone came down, and those cities are smoking like a furnace. And yet Jesus said, Capernaum, it's going to be worse for you than that on judgment day because you have something Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have. You had me in the flesh preaching to you, explaining to you the way of salvation, encouraging you to repent of your sins. You refused to repent. You rejected me as Savior. Your judgment will be worse than the judgment of Sodom. Now, that is coming from the lips of Jesus himself. So that's judgment. There's no question about that. What is the first statement we're building all these examples around? There is such a thing as the judgment of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, go to the book of 1 John at the very end of the uh, of the New Testament. In fact, when you get to 1 John, you're getting pretty close to the book of Revelation. But I want to show you an interesting verse. This would be, you know, easily a sermon all by itself, and I can't say everything about it that I would like to say. But nonetheless, I want to make the point. In 1 John chapter 5 and in verse number 16, the Apostle John is writing, 1 John 5, 16, and here's what he says. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. And so here he refers to something known as the sin leading to death or the sin unto death. What does this mean? It means that in the life of every believer, you, me, and everybody else who's been saved, there is a sin, or maybe a series of sins, maybe a season of sin, but there is a sin unto death that we could commit against God that would cause God to do what? That would cause God to take us out of this life early. Now, we don't know what that sin is, and more than likely, it's not the same sin for each of us. And whether it's, again, one individual sin that a person could commit or a season of sin, just a total rebellion against God, it would be considered the sin unto death. And so... Some people could go to heaven early. They'd still go to heaven. They're still saved. John's writing to Christians here. But think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because in that passage, the Apostle Paul is giving us the instructions for taking the Lord's Supper. 
And he's telling us, before you take Holy Communion, you better confess your sins. You better get right with God. You better examine yourselves. You better take this seriously. You don't just stroll into a worship service and flippantly, nonchalantly take the Lord's Supper. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, if you take communion like that, flippantly, uh, you know, with no repentance, no self-examination, Paul said there are many people who are sick, And there are many Christians who have died prematurely because so for them, that would have been their sin unto death, their callous attitude toward the Lord's Supper. Best example I've ever heard would be this. Let's play like that. Here you have a parent and you you have a mom and she's taking her four-year-old son to one of his friend's birthday parties. And so on the way to the birthday party, the mother said to the son, now listen, Billy, when we get to this house today, I expect you to be on your best behavior. These people have been nice to invite us. They live in a very nice home, and I expect you to act right. And so they get there, and little Billy takes his shoes off and throws them uh, across the house, and his mother goes and picks the shoes up, puts the shoes back on Billy, and said, Billy, we don't do that. You keep your shoes on your feet. That's how you act in somebody else's house. Well, Billy half pays attention to his mom, and A little bit later, he goes in there where the birthday cake is, and he takes his hand, and he puts his hand down in that cake and messes the cake all up, and then he puts his, he got icing all over his hand, he runs it down the wall, and his mother just gets all over him and said, Billy, you can't. You can't do that. This is, now, you've ruined the cake. You've, you've messed up their wall. And, and so she disciplines Billy, and she said, Billy, I'm so disappointed in you. If you do anything else like that, we're going home. Well, Billy doesn't think his mom means it. He thinks, I can do whatever I want to do. And so a little later on during the party, he gets a little red Kool-Aid, and, and he goes into the living room where they have beautiful white carpet, and he just takes that cup of Kool-Aid, and he turns it upside down and ruins the carpet. And so what does the mother do? The mother goes over there, picks Billy up, and says, we're going home. He, she gave him warning after warning, but there came a point where his mother took him home early from the party because of his behavior. Now, that's what the sin unto death is. It, it doesn't cost a person their salvation, but it does get them to heaven early because God just says, that's enough. Your witness for me is being damaged. The kingdom of, of heaven is being uh, brought into ridicule because of your behavior. That's enough. You're coming home early. That's the sin unto death. That is another example of judgment. And so what I'm saying here, the original question is, are we under the judgment of God? A pandemic, something, an epidemic that has taken over the whole world, are we under the judgment of God? Well, whether we are or not, first thing we need to know is there is such a thing as the judgment of God. Now, statement number two balances statement number one, but it is so very important, and I want you to think about what I'm saying today, and that is simply this. As human beings with a limited perspective on life, we are not really in a position to declare when something is a judgment of God and when something is not a judgment of God. In other words, here's somebody that is 30 years old and they die at that age. Well, it would be wrong for somebody to say, well, they must have committed the sin unto death because they were taken out early. Well, they may not have been taken out early at all. They were taken out when it was their time. Jesus died when he was 33. He certainly hadn't sinned. Oswald Chambers, probably the most influential devotional writer of all time, he died in his early 40s of an appendicitis attack. 
It wasn't because of any sin in his life. Oswald Chambers was walking with God. I think about missionary Jim Elliott, who had gone to minister to the, to, the, to the Indians, and yet he was killed because of his faithful witness in his 20s. And so here's someone who died young. Well, it would be wrong to say, well, he must have committed the sin unto death because he died young. What I'm saying on this second statement is very important. Yes, Statement number one is true. There is such a thing as a judgment of God. But friends, statement number two is true, is true too. As human beings with a very limited perspective on life, we don't have uh, the, enough knowledge to be able to pronounce with authority when something is a judgment of God and when something is not the judgment of God. We just don't know. Now, go to Luke chapter 13, and I'll show you a beautiful example of what I'm talking about here, how even in... Uh, the days in which Jesus lived, something had happened. In fact, two tragedies had taken place, and many of the religious leaders of that day and others thought, well, the reason these people experienced this tragedy is because there must have been some sin in their life, and God was judging them, and God was punishing them, and yet Jesus listened to what they were saying, and Jesus basically said to them, you're wrong. That's not what happened here. Look in Luke chapter 13 and verse number 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And so he's talking about a group of people who had been killed. And verse number two, Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus was saying, this wasn't the sin unto death. This wasn't because of a sin in their life. They were no worse than anybody else. In verse number four, something else. It said, or those 18, there, there are 18 people on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? But I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so in the place of Siloam, there was a tower, and one day the tower fell, and it fell on 18 people, and they were all killed. And many of them, people living in that time, said, well, these 18 people must have had sin in their lives, and God has judged them because the tower fell on them. And Jesus said to them, no, that's not right. You're wrong. The 18 people on whom that tower fell were no worse than anybody else who the tower didn't fall on. So it was not the judgment of God. What these people were doing, they were kind of, these are New Testament equivalents of Job's friends. Remember the Old Testament, Job had all those problems, had all that heartache, all that loss, all those horrible things happened to him. And Job's three friends came to him and basically said to him, Job, the reason all this bad stuff has happened to you is because there's got to be some sin in your life. And that sin in your life has resulted in the judgment of God. And yet, certainly Job was a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, all those things that happened in Job's life had absolutely nothing to do with Job's sin. That was not a judgment of God. That was a test that God allowed Job to go through. All that was actually brought on by Satan, who one day appeared to God, and uh, they had this conversation about Job. And so Satan was the one bringing all this on uh, Job. It wasn't a punishment. It wasn't a judgment. God was allowing those things to happen for a test. And so the original question, are we under the judgment of God? Some say, yes, we are. Some say, no, God would never do anything like that. 
What's your answer, John? What do you say are we under the judgment of God? My answer to the question is, I don't know. I don't know whether we are or not because from my perspective, which is very limited, I don't know whether this is a judgment of God or not, but I do know this. God placed on my heart that this was what he wanted our church to think about today. The question, we don't have the answer. Are we under the judgment of God? I don't know. Now, I'll tell you this. I believe one day we will have the answer to that question. So how are we going to know? Well, here's one way we'll know. You just use your brain and think, God gave us a mind. God gives us a discerning spirit. If, if one of these days, in a, say three or four or five months, a vaccine comes out, and the vaccine basically just stops the spread of this virus, which is what the medical community is saying is going to happen, okay? Well, if a vaccine stops this virus and kills it dead in its tracks, then I would say this COVID-19, it was not the judgment of God. Think about it. If this is the judgment of God, do you really think that scientists, doctors, pharmacists are going to be able to create some vaccine to stop the judgment of God? So then God would be in heaven looking down and God would be saying, well, you know, I had put the people under judgment but they figured out a vaccine, and so now they're no longer under my judgment. And so they would have basically figured, we would basically have figured a way how to get out of the judgment of God. And so what I'm saying, if a vaccine knocks this thing out, this wasn't the judgment of God. If, if that ends up being the case, we'd have to just say, well, COVID-19 was something that God allowed. He didn't even send it. He didn't cause it. He just allowed it to happen for whatever reasons, we may not know, but certainly to get our attention, reprioritize our lives, to take a hard look at how we're living, make sure things are right with God. But if a vaccine ends this virus, this wasn't the judgment of God. But I'll tell you this, if this thing goes away before we get to a vaccine, I mean, it just mysteriously disappears. I think any rationally thinking, Bible-believing Christian would have to at least strongly consider you know what? This may have been the judgment of God. A virus took over the whole world, and it mysteriously went away before a vaccine was ever created. Maybe, maybe then we'll be able to look back and say, well, this was the judgment of God. But as it is right now, it hasn't played out. We don't know. And my honest answer to the question is, I don't know whether one the judgment of God or not. But what I'm saying to you today is, if there's even a chance that we are under the judgment of God, wouldn't we be wise to respond appropriately? How foolish would we be if we are indeed under the judgment of God to just continue on with life as though nothing were happening? It'd be like me coming out here today and saying, well, uh, I want to begin a series of sermons on, on how to manage your money better. Well, that's a good subject. In fact, I'm thinking about writing a booklet on how to honor God with your finances. And so that's certainly something that we all need uh, to do in our lives. But if we're under the judgment of God, for me to preach a six-week series on how to manage your money uh, better or honor God with your finances, it would be kind of like we're on the Titanic 
the Titanic is going down, and we say, well, while it's going down, let's rearrange all the furniture out here on, on the deck, the chairs and the tables, let's straighten everything up. No, if the Titanic's going down, we need to do something differently than we would do if the Titanic was sailing along normally. What I'm saying is, if we are indeed under the judgment of God, we need to do something different than rearrange the deck chairs. We need to respond appropriately. And so you say, well, John, if we're under the judgment of God, what should we do? Let me mention three things very quickly. Number one, if we are under the judgment of God, and one theologian whom I respect deeply says he believes we are, he says he thinks we're under the gracious judgment of God and that God is graciously giving us a chance to respond appropriately. So what do we do? Number one, we repent of our sins. What did Jesus tell those people in Luke chapter 13 on two separate occasions? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so uh, we need to, uh, to repent of our sins and to say, God, forgive me. Search my heart and re- forgive me for all the sins in my life. The second thing we need to do is to reason with God in prayer. We need to reason with God in prayer. God is reasonable. Isaiah 1.18, God said, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Now, go back to Genesis chapter 18, because I want you to see this. Because before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19, we find Abraham praying in chapter 18. And in this prayer, Abraham was reasoning with God. And so, in verse number 23, I want you to see this. I could just describe it, but I want you to see it. Genesis 18, verse 23. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the people for their sakes. And then uh, in verse 28, he continues the prayer. He said, well, God, how about if there are 45 righteous? And God said, if I find 45 righteous, I won't destroy it. In verse 29, what about if there are only 40, God? He's reasoning with God. God, if there are only 40 righteous people in Sodom, for the sake of those 40 righteous people, would you please spare the city? God said, I'll spare it. And then in verse 30, he said, God, how about if there are 30? He said, I'll spare it for 30. In verse 31, he said, God, how about if there are 20? He said, I'll spare it for 20. And then in verse 32, he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. But once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 10. And so Abraham was reasoning with God and he got God down to 10. He said, God, if there are just 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom, would you please spare the city for those 10? God said, if I find 10, I'll spare the city. So it tells us that There weren't 10 righteous people in Sodom because he sent down the fire and brimstone. But what he was doing, he was reasoning with God. What could we do in prayer? Say, God, I don't know if this is a judgment or not. But God, if this is a judgment on the world, I'm asking you for the sake of those of us who have received Jesus Christ. I'll tell you how I would pray this prayer. I wouldn't say to God, God, for the sake of my righteousness, God, no, God, for the sake of how holy I am, spare the world. Here's what I would say to God, because I pray this sometimes. I say, God, I pray that for the sake 
of the righteousness of Jesus Christ who is living in me. Not John's righteousness. My only I don't have any righteousness of my own. My only righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so we could reason with God and say, God, for the sake of those of us who have confessed our sins, repented of our sins, been forgiven of our sins, and received the righteousness of Christ, God, when you look down from heaven in our hearts, you see the blood of Jesus. You see the very righteousness of Christ. And so, God, we're appealing to you, reasoning with you, pleading with you on the sake of his, for the sake of his righteousness. God, spare this world. Stay your hand. Restrain your anger and bring this plague, bring this judgment to an end. And so we can reason with God. And then the third thing we can do after we repent of our sins and reason with God, we can plead for mercy. We can plead for mercy. Let me give you a scripture verse, Habakkuk chapter 3. And in verse number 2, that verse says, in wrath, Remember mercy. Habakkuk the prophet was praying to God, and at the end of that second verse of the third chapter, he said, in wrath, God, remember mercy. And we've seen it. In the time of the flood, he was merciful to Noah. In the day of Sodom and Gomorrah, he was merciful to Abraham. Even in the day of David, when the angel of the Lord was going to destroy everybody, God was merciful. He said, it is enough. Restrain your hand. And so we can pray, God, show us mercy. Let's think about mercy for a second. We talk a lot about grace. We don't talk as much about mercy. What is grace? For by grace are you saved through faith. What is God's grace? Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. Forgiveness, salvation, heaven. That's the grace of God. We don't deserve that. What is mercy? Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. If you're speeding, going down the interstate, going 75, 80 miles an hour, and the... uh, Highway patrolman pulls you over and says, you were 15 miles per hour over the speed limit, but I'm going to let you off with a warning. What did that officer give you? He gave you mercy. He did not give you what you deserve. You deserved a ticket. He gave you a warning. He didn't give you what you deserved. So the mercy of God is when God doesn't give us what we deserve. What do we deserve? The judgment of God. You say, John, do you really believe that the world today deserves the judgment of God? Do you really believe that America today deserves the judgment of God? Do you really believe that, that everybody deserves the judgment of God? Let me ask you three questions that will help us answer that question. Question number one, and just think about this. I'm not going to belabor it. I'll just mention them and move on. But in America today and in the world at large, question number one, is the Bible being respected? The Bible is the Word of God. How would you answer that question? Do you think the Bible is being respected today? Question number two, are the Ten Commandments being obeyed? Now, we've all broken the Ten Commandments, but there, you know, some mock the Ten Commandments. Some laugh at the Ten Commandments. Just nonetheless answer the question, in the world today, are the Ten Commandments being obeyed? And question number three, in America today and in the world today, is the name of Jesus Christ being honored Paul said that God has given Jesus a name that is above every name. He has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me ask you a question. Is that happening today? Well, I don't think so. People are mocking the name Jesus, taking the name of Jesus in vain. And so we live in a world where the Bible is really not respected. The Ten Commandments are not being obeyed. In fact, they're being, in many cases, mocked. And the name of Jesus 
is not being honored as it should be. Every knee is not bowing to Jesus right now. Now, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's not happening now. And so God looks at this world that he made and God says, they're not respecting my word. They're not keeping my commandments and they're not honoring the name of Jesus. Looks like to me, we deserve judgment. And so when we plead with God for mercy, what are we saying? God, please, we deserve judgment, but give us mercy. God, don't give us what we do deserve. And so what should we do as we wrap this sermon up? What should we do? If there's even a chance that we're under the judgment of God. I don't know whether we are or not. If I, if I had to guess today, if you just wanted to guess from me, I would probably say, I think we're not under the judgment of God because it looks like we're in a situation where a vaccine is gonna be created and the vaccine is gonna put an end to this. And so if that happens, I don't think we could call this the judgment of God. And so for that reason alone, I would just say, if I had to guess, I would say we're probably not under the judgment of God. But I couldn't say that with 100% confidence because we may well be under the judgment of God. And so you say, well, John, what ought we to do? Well, whether we're under the judgment of God or not, I'll tell you what we ought to do. We ought to pray and we ought to repent. And I want to show you one other verse and then we'll stop. Go to the book of Daniel, chapter number nine, because I'm going to show you exactly what we should pray. The book of Daniel, right after Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Here's what we should pray. Whether this is a judgment of God or whether it's not, we should still pray. Folks, whether this is a judgment of God or not, we're still sinners. And it's not just that America's sinning and the world is sinning. We are sinners ourselves. I'm a sinner myself. In Daniel chapter 9, in verse 20, it says, Now Daniel said, while I was, still, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. Notice he confessed his sin first. And the sin of his people. So what should we do? We should confess our own personal sins and the sins of our nation and the sins of our world. And so, God, here's what I've done. Forgive me. Here's what our nation has done. Forgive us. Here's what the world has done. Forgive us. Is what Daniel did. And presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, verse 21. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer. Notice what happened while he was praying. The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. As Daniel was praying, asking God to forgive him of his sins, asking God to forgive the people of their sins, the angel Gabriel showed up. Now, as referred to here as the man, only referred to as a man because in this vision, he took the appearance of a man. This is the angel Gabriel. And as I thought about that, preparing this sermon, I thought, you know what? If we would begin to pray and ask God to be merciful to us, to restrain his hand, to stay his anger, to extend mercy and not grace, it may well be that in the midst of this pandemic and in the midst of our prayers that an angel of God shows up and the virus is gone. The plague is stopped. And CNN and Fox and ABC, NBC and CBS said, we thought we were in the process of creating a vaccine. The vaccine will not be necessary. The virus is gone. And friend, I'm telling you, if that happens... I'd come right back out here and sit in this same chair and say, I believe with all my heart we were under the judgment of God, but we prayed, we repented, God was merciful, and in the middle of our prayers, it is as though God sent his angel. Gabriel showed up, 
And Gabriel, under the authority of God, spoke the word, reached out his hand, and the plague was banished, and the plague was gone. And so here's what I want to encourage us to do as I close. We've been praying 10 minutes a day for God to stop this virus. We've been doing that since March. We've been trying to do it at 8 o'clock at night many times. I don't do it at 8. Sometimes I'll do it at 11 or some other time during the day. The time's not important. But for the next seven days, here's what I want us to do. I want us to pray 10 minutes a day, but not just that God would stop the virus, but that God would forgive our sins and that God would show mercy to our world. You see, if this is the judgment of God and all we pray is for God to stop the virus, we're not dealing with the real problem. Because if it's the judgment of God, the real problem is not the virus. The real problem is sin. And so if we'll deal with the real problem and repent of our sins and pray for God's mercy, God may just be pleased to say, it's enough. Five months is long enough. It's enough. I'm going to say to the angel, restrain your hand. I'm staying my anger. This pandemic is gone. And so with our heads bowed and eyes closed, this is a heavy message on my heart today. If this is the judgment of God, how foolish would we be to act as though it isn't? Would you right now ask God to forgive you of your sins? And God is there asking them to forgive them, asking you to forgive them of their sins. God, I ask you to forgive me of mine. Would you pray right now that God would forgive the sins of America? The sins are pretty obvious, but could we just say, God, forgive our country? Very much like Daniel said, God, forgive me and forgive my nation. We say, God, forgive us, forgive me, and forgive our nation. And in this case, we can take it one step farther. God, forgive our world. See, we're not just praying, forgive America and forgive the world. We begin by saying, God, forgive us. Here's what we say. If you want to be real before God, you say, God, I'm not just asking you to forgive America for not respecting the Bible, breaking the Ten Commandments, and not honoring the name of Jesus. I do ask you to forgive America, but God, I ask you to forgive me for times in my life when I've not fully respected the Bible, when I have not obeyed the commandments, and when I've not honored the name of Jesus. It begins with us. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. God, forgive me. And God, forgive America. Forgive America, God, for not respecting the Bible, for not honoring and obeying the Ten Commandments, and for not honoring the name of Jesus. And God, forgive our world for those same three things. God, we deserve judgment. We're asking for mercy. And God, we pray that even in the next seven days as we pray this, that in the midst of our praying, an angel may show up at your bidding and this plague would come to an end. With your head bowed and eyes closed, it may be today that you've never been saved. You know what you need? You need God's grace and God's mercy. You need God's grace giving you what you don't deserve. You need God's mercy not giving you what you do deserve. Pray this prayer, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. I trust you to do it. In Jesus' name I pray. 
And all the people said, amen and amen.